0: Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go
1: there's two different ways to affect the NOI. You can either increase income or you can decrease expenses. So you can go into a property and actually manage it more efficiently than the prior owner. And guess what? You can still increase and affect that NOI by reducing the operational expenses.
0: That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, You know I'm a fan of your platform, and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors?
2: Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst Passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at $25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are, those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of Tribe Investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of passive investing from left field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest.
3: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor Learn and become part of the Left Field community.
1: I'm Kenny Wolf, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
0: Today, we have Dan Hanford from passiveinvesting.com. Dan is a business owner involved in specialty medical clinics, anatomical model sales, and chiropractic supply companies. He got started in real estate syndication to help take advantage of tax advantages. That are available to real estate investors. His company has a multifamily real estate portfolio of over 2,700 doors worth about 380 million dollars, and they are currently closing on their first self-storage deal. Dan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
1: Jim, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to sharing with the audience here.
0: Awesome. Can you start with just kind of your journey, how you got into real estate investing? I know you started out in businesses, and and it sounds like you got into uh, syndication and real estate to help help offset some taxes. But can you tell us your story a little bit? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I'm actually a chiropractor by trade. So while I was going through chiropractic school, I started one of my very first companies that's called shopanatomical.com. And we sell all types of uh, skeletons and skulls and brains and hearts, all kinds of plastic models. Because while I was in school, all the students needed a spine model to be able to Learn the anatomy of the human spine, so they can learn how to adjust it in a, in a real body. And so, found that in the bookstore, they were selling one for one hundred and eighty nine ninety five. And I was able to source the spine uh, through a distributor that was selling it. And I was actually to I called them up and said, "Hey, if I can get an order of say twenty of these together, how much could I get them for?" And they said, "We'll get them to you for sixty four dollars." And so I said, "Well, I'll mark it up a little bit." I marked it up and marked it up to sixty nine ninety five ended up selling 80 of them in the first week with cash up front because I didn't want any IOUs from a bunch of students. And so uh, that actually uh, opened me up to looking into cutting out the distributor and the middleman, which fast forward to today is actually one of our biggest competitors is that distributor and went straight to the manufacturer, opened up a website called Shopping Atomical and started selling, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 a month in sales. And up to this point, we continue to sell six figures a month of that product. Not just the spines, but the skeletons and skulls and brains and hearts and all kinds of plastic models to colleges, universities, doctors' offices across the country and around the world. And that, that business is something that I started when I was in chiropractic school and what allowed me to be able to start my very first clinic when I got out uh, debt-free. And so started that first clinic when we got out. started to learn early on that I was really, even though I owned my own practice, seeing my own patients, that I was kind of tied to a job. Because if I wanted to go on vacation, I still had to continue to pay my staff and my overhead, lights, utilities, things like that. I actually had to pay to go on vacation with my family. And so I I learned quickly that I wanted to hire other people in the business to be able to do what I was doing. And so I learned the art of delegation, learning to delegate to other people so I didn't have to do it. And then ended up integrating those clinics into a medical model where we actually were doing chiropractic and medicine under one roof. And then about probably six or seven years ago, completely removed the chiropractic services from the clinics to really focus on a niche in medicine, which is non-surgical orthopedics and some sports medicine stuff that we were doing around some regenerative medicine like prolotherapy, PRP, and stem cell treatments for orthopedic conditions. And now we have four locations across South Carolina. Our headquarters is located here, which is where I live in Columbia, South Carolina. And that, with, with those businesses, it created a lot of cash flow. All the businesses were are, and still are debt-free, and so they cash flow very well, and it caused me to have to pay a lot of money to the government in taxes. And so to be able to avoid that is why we went into the real estate side, started the private equity real estate firm called PassiveInvesting.com, which you had mentioned earlier about some of the things that we've been doing lately with it. And uh, it's allowed me to be able to continue to pursue and become a real estate professional to offset my income from depreciation, but also be able to help a lot of other busy professionals like myself to be able to invest inside of real estate and get the nice quality returns in these institutional level assets that we're acquiring right now.
0: That's a great story. And I think it's similar in some cases to other origin stories of real estate investors where real estate solves a tax problem. It seems like that's what you did. But how do you make the transition from being a business owner? How did you find real estate? How did you decide this is what's going to help support my other businesses?
1: Well, I wasn't really looking for real estate to support my other businesses. I was really looking for it to help me from the tax perspective, right? So in my research on how can I keep more of what I'm making, obviously real estate is a natural kind of a foray, if you will, to help you know, offset some of that income. And so my, my thought was that if I can step out and do it full time, then I can become a real estate professional and that would allow me to be able to offset more of my income from the depreciation versus just doing it passively. And so that was the main reason and impetus between, behind wanting to step out. That how I did it was, literally, I came up with the idea of doing it on a Friday, thought about it and talked about it and prayed about it over the weekend and talked about it with my wife over a weekend. And then Monday morning, I came in and talked to my COO at the time of the clinics and told him, I said, I want to leave and set you up as the CEO and I want to completely remove myself. And that was actually over three years ago that that happened. And uh, he's basically been running everything since then. And it's actually gone better than I had expected since I left, because things have actually done better. And the profits have actually increased. And I've been able to focus on the real estate side, which has also produced a lot of extra revenue and income as well.
0: Right. And that that speaks to your ability, as you said earlier, to delegate, because if you can't let go of those original businesses, you can't devote yourself to real estate. So how did you Most investors typically start with single family homes. Obviously, you kind of accelerated the process, but what did you get into first? Did you immediately go into syndications or did you buy on your own account first? How did the transition work?
1: The thing I did first is I actually passively invested in some other multifamily syndications first and then went straight into the active side. So I did, like you said, you mentioned, I did kind of first look at potentially doing smaller single families or or single families versus smaller multifamilies. And found out that it was just not scalable for what I really was looking to do because you can only scale so much in buying so many you know single families in a year and, and miss fell same thing with the smaller multifamilies and I could scale a lot faster and have a lot more diversity and diversification if I was able to go a little bit larger and that's why I went into the larger multifamily space so the first the first multifamily space that or even the first real estate outside of my primary home that I bought was an 8.9 million dollar asset 130 units. And then fast forward to today, you know, we have uh, our, our, our largest deal today that we've closed was last year in October. We closed a 57, actually it was November, $57.6 million deal and raised a little over $21, $21 million, $21.49 million to be able to acquire that asset. And, uh, and it's, it's now, you know, still, still our largest one to date. And, you know, currently as we're speaking, we have another deal under contract, which is about a $55 million deal. And uh, we just continued down that path of being able to continue to get to the point of having a billion in assets under management over the next two to three years.
0: Well, that, that's a very fast growth from three years ago till now. That, that's pretty amazing. Now, you mentioned you did some passive investing yourself before you started your syndication company. How did you find the sponsors and, and what, what process did you go through to evaluate those sponsors?
1: The very beginning, it was very loose, right? Because I didn't really know a lot. I was kind of green. And so the first one that I, that I invested with was actually my mentor at the time. So I hired a mentor in the, the multifamily space right out of the bat and uh, already had a, a level of, of credibility and trust built up with that person and that group. And then the second one was actually one of his mentees that actually had put a deal together and I invested inside of that deal. So it wasn't a lot of, it wasn't as, as good as what I do now. You know, my wife and I right now, we actually still passively invest in other groups outside of our own. And we have 38 different passive investments with about 14 different operators across the country. And so a little bit different about what we did then versus what we do now.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what you do now? Because it's the same, you know, when I first started, I just was investing passively with people that I had met. And that was really the only criteria. And it sounds like that's similar to how how you started with people that you know, like, and trust. But how do you now find new passive um, investments and new sponsors to invest with?
1: So one of the things that I do is I'm always on the, I, I try to get on as many lists as possible so I can see the deal flow that's coming out and I can see exactly what people are actually putting together, right? So that's the first thing that I try to do. And for any of your listeners, that's what I highly recommend is get on as many of these lists as possible. You'll know a lot and find out a lot about a group by just being on their list and seeing some of the deal flow and seeing some of the content that they actually put out. That, that they actually produce and you will either connect with them or you will not. It'll be very clear to you. But I actually wrote an article recently and you can find it on our website. We have a an article a, a knowledge center on our website at passiveinvesting.com and you can just go to passiveinvesting.com in the knowledge center, you can click you can search for red flags. And I put together an article of the seven red flags that I look for. And I won't go through each one of them today with you Jim, but a couple of the the ones that really stand out to me is I, I want to place my capital with a group that has one of the managing partners at, at, who is at the helm of that business who has some form of success and background in business, right? And again, I don't want it to just be any background in business. I want it to be a successful background because you and I both know, Jim, that we probably know some people that know how to run a business, but they know how to run it into the ground, right? Exactly. And, and we want to make sure that we're, we're, we have people that are, are, are watching over our hardened, hard-earned money that are, you know, had to have a background in business for, for, you know, a good example is like during COVID, right? There's a lot of decisions that had to be made during COVID that were very, very vital and very important. And it's very important to have somebody that has that background in business to know when to pivot, which KPIs to monitor, when to actually make those changes as necessary. And you also have to know how to manage people and put in systems and procedures and processes in place. And if you don't have that person that has that background in business, it's going to be a little bit harder for them to be able to manage your asset, as well as somebody who you know, already has that kind of background in business.
0: Interesting. And just for the record, for the, for the listeners, that um, they can go to your website to read that article. You also gave us permission to put that on our website with a link over to your website. So if they go to leftfieldinvestors.com articles, they'll, they'll find that it's an awesome article. So thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit about the types of multifamily properties that you purchase? Because it seems to me like there's a lot of sponsors are doing the heavy value add B, C class properties. And from what I've seen from some of the offerings you've sent, they seem to be A class with a light value add, if any. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy there?
1: Sure. There's two different types of assets that our group is currently going after. And one of them is one that you mentioned, Jim, which is a class A asset, which we would call a core plus property where it's, it's a core holding is really something that has nothing to do on nothing to do. And that we do have some properties that are just straight core holdings or holdings. Um, but we really like to find those kind of B plus with value add and the core plus holdings. And when we talk about class A, we're not talking about a, 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 we're talking, we're not talking about a downtown kind of urban infill class A, right? Where the rents are, you know, four five six seven eight thousand $8,000 a month. We're talking about suburban class A's, right? These are, these are class A properties that have built within the last five to f- five to 10 years. And the average rents are, you know, 13, 14, 15, maybe upwards to 17, $1,800 a month. So they're not that far off from a, from a kind of B plus asset, Right. Because the biggest, the big fear that everybody always hears about or thinks about is, uh, it, during a recession, guess what happens? All the A's go to B's, and all the B's go to A's, and it just doesn't happen. If you look at the data from the even from the last financial crisis of 08, it does not happen. What typically happens is you have different asset classes within these different asset classes. So, Class A is not just all Class A. You have these urban downtown infill Class As, and then you have the suburban Class As. So. What do you think the, the, the downtown urban infill Class A people are going to do? They're going to go to the suburban Class A's, right? They're not just going to all of a sudden go, I can't afford $5,000 a month, so I'm going to go down and pay $500 a month in Class C. It, it just doesn't happen, right? So those, those Class A's downtown people are going to be going to the suburban Class A's, and it's only a few, of, a few of them. So it's not even like a huge migration. You see the majority of the shift in that kind of top tier product, which is why it's usually only for the big boys, right? the institutional firms, things like that, the REITs, the hedge funds, the family offices. But those people will, will migrate to the suburban class A's. And then inside of the B class assets, you have three different levels there as well. You have B minus, you have middle of the road B, and you have that B plus. So you do see a shift within B of the different, different people jumping from B plus to maybe B to B minus. But you have this kind of trickle down all the way across. So really the, the worst one to be in, which would be those suburban, I mean, it would be those, those, those urban downtown infill class A's, right? And so those are the ones that we don't go after. We're we're primarily going after the suburban class A's that have a light value add, or it's just a straight core holding, or we go after a B plus with value add right now.
0: And do you find that with those, uh, specifically the A class, because it seems like anything that's new development stuff is the higher end class A properties. Is that your competition when you're you're looking at, at buying one of these, that you're competing against the developments that are coming up?
1: Yeah, you're definitely going to be competing on it. And you're talking about competing from a buyer perspective or from the actual resident perspective?
0: Yeah, from the rental, from the resident perspective.
1: Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, you know when you, when you buy a Class A property, obviously your competition is going to be more than just that. It's going to be your, your newer product that's coming online. It's going to be product that came online around you know, for the last five to ten years. So you have to constantly be kind of monitoring that competition to figure out what's the supply that's coming into the market, but also what's the supply that's been in the market and how well has it been absorbed as well.
0: And what can you do if you're buying a fairly new property? What can you do to help appreciation, force appreciation? Or are, are there because if you're if you're doing a heavy rehab, obviously you can you can grow the the income. But what do you do on a class A property that's fairly new to grow the income for the investors?
1: Sure. So there's not going to be as much forced appreciation on a even a suburban class A, right? Obviously you can still try to find some value add pieces where if you need to you can, you can update the interiors, maybe spend $1,500, $2,000 a unit and get a nice, you know, 50 to $75 rent bump to be able to do that. Yeah, that, that's definitely an option in some of these properties. It's not on all of them, right? Um, but there's also, you know, a management style as well. So there's two different ways to affect the NOI. You can either increase income or you can decrease expenses. So you can go into a property and actually manage it more efficiently than the prior owner then guess what? You can still increase and affect that NOI by reducing the operational expenses. And then one of the other unique things that we do on our properties is we try to add a, uh, an internet service. We try to become the internet service provider for our properties. So we use a service called Gigify, which actually comes in and bolts onto the property a, a, the ability for all the residents to have internet. And we're actually the ones that's the internet service provider. And so we're reselling the internet back to the residents and allowing us to be able to cash flow that that usually revenue is about $50 a unit. So that's some additional things that we look at to see are there other ways that we can force appreciation so that when we go to sell the property, we have that nice exit.
0: Right, and one of the things that uh, that I've learned over the years is that even a $50 rent increase or revenue increase over, you know, three or 400 units, that certainly drives the the value and that can increase the value pretty quickly. So that, that seems like a pretty good strategy. Talking about the way people invest, I see a lot of sponsors now are going to the A class and B class shares. And I know I invested in one of your projects and they had the A and the B class. Can you talk a little bit about what the differences are and why you decided to go to to two different share classes? Sure. So
1: the, the, the main reason behind it was really that the market is getting tighter and tighter. And so in order to be able to show the investors that they can have a higher return potential, you've got to take those returns away from somewhere, right? And so when you break it down into a two-tiered approach, you actually have the class A shares, which is more of like your traditional preferred equity position, where like in our deals, they get a 9% preferred return. There's no participation in the upside. So all that upside potential that they had because they're in a better position in the capital stack, so they're in a lower risk position, they're giving up that upside potential. But all that upside potential now goes to the class B investor. So where if you just do a straight, you know, a, you know 7% perhaps 70-30 split, then what's going to happen is is you're going to have the returns overall go down. Now, when you add in the slice of the preferred equity, it does affect cash flows, right? So your cash flows for class B during the hold period will go down because you're having to give more of the cash flows to class A. However, it makes the overall returns for class B go up, right? And so as the market starts to get tighter and tighter, I think you're going to start seeing that more and more and really being able to understand that your position in the capital stack is either whether you are wanting to invest in class A or B is really, really important in determining where your risk profile is and where you want to be. And one of the other things to consider is, is the, the amount of class A versus class B is available in the capital stack. So we typically try to keep it around that 25 to 35% of the capital stack being that class A share. Once you get above 40%, you start to have diminishing returns and the risk actually goes up for class A. Because you have more risk because you have to have more cash flows to be able to give to Class A versus having a lower amount to give to Class A. But the Class A investor is, is, is as close to a guarantee as you can get in these types of investments. And a lot of investors, they just want to have that guaranteed 9%. And they're, they're, they're happy with that. They want that safety and security net of not having to worry about you know potential returns going down or whatever. And they're also getting that money now month over month. So if they're smart, they can actually redeploy that capital month over month in different types of investments, and now they have a compounding effect on their returns as well.
0: And do you find that a lot of your investors do a little bit of both? Because we, in our community, left field investors, we've been having some conversations about. Typically, I've been investing in the Class B shares. You know, the Class A puts more leverage, right? So on the upside, Class B shares better performance. If you have a higher IRR more of that's going to the Bs. But on the other side, if the asset doesn't perform up to expectations and the IRR is lower, on the downside, the Bs are going to have worse results, correct?
1: Yes, that would be correct, yes. Yeah. So obviously the, 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 the overall return for the class Bs is more contingent upon the performance of the asset.
0: So what we were discussing in our, in our meeting the other night was as a way to offset, you want the upside of the B shares but maybe as a way to offset the potential downside is instead of just investing 100% in one class, you kind of do maybe a 75-25 split of the shares. So you get you get a little bit of both worlds. Does that approach make sense to you? And do your investors do that?
1: Yes, we've offered that since the very beginning of offering these, this kind of dual-tiered structure. And we do have quite a few investors that like that kind of, we call it our blended return option, where they can do 75-25, they can do 50-50, however they want to split it up they can do that uh, depending on their risk profile.
0: That makes sense. Now I think that just having the discussion is what I'm encouraging people to do. Because as I, as I said, when I first invested in these, I was really only looking at my share class. But if you're not looking at the entire capital stack, you're really missing the whole picture. And so it's important for passive investors to analyze the entire capital stack and not just focus on where they're investing. And when we talk about capital stack, you got to look at the debt too, right? (laughs) I mean, The
1: debt is still part of the capital stack of how you actually acquire the property. So understanding where they are leveraging themselves as far as an LTV or an LTC on the property is an important piece of the capital stack analysis as well.
0: Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing?
2: I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy, and it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives.
0: So, moving towards um, self-storage now. You know, you've you've established yourself. You 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 have over three hundred eighty million dollars of multifamily investments in your company. Now you're moving to self-storage. Can you talk about why self-storage and what you did to make sure that you have the same type of expertise and in self-storage as you do in multifamily as you're moving forward?
1: Sure. So one of the main reasons when we started the company PassiveInvesting.com, one of the main reasons why we didn't call it MultifamilyInvesting.com is because, well, for one, that domain was probably already taken, but we were actually wanting to make sure that we left it open for alternative asset classes as we continue to grow and as as we continue to move forward into the future. And so we kind of already knew from the very beginning when we started that we would likely move into other asset classes. And there's some other asset classes that we are looking into as well, even as we move forward into 2021, even though we've already added the self-storage. And the self-storage is a, is a nice asset class because there's the top two assets that perform really well during any type of you know, economic downturn or economic you know, upside is, is both multifamily and uh, self-storage. So they, they both kind of coincide very well. And so that was the main impetus for us wanting to add it in. And myself personally, my wife and I I have invested in in self-storage assets already in the past. So we wanted to kind of do that first, kind of get our feet wet, kind of get some understanding based knowledge as well. And then as we added it to our portfolio, we actually hired on a team to be able to manage the self-storage division of our passiveinvesting.com group so that we didn't take our focus away from the multifamily because we definitely didn't want to do that. But we also wanted to be able to add on the self storage to be able to add on another kind of vertical and diversification for our investors as they continue to build out their portfolio.
0: And what do you like about the self storage that's different from multifamily? You said mo- both of them hold up in pretty much any market condition. What do you like about self storage?
1: Well, one of the things right now that I like about self storage, what I think is a great opportunity, which is why you're seeing a lot of people going into the space, is the cap rates in multifamily have have gone down tremendously. And if you look at the trends over the last several years, even the last 10 decade, you're going to see that the self-storage trend is the same way. The cap rates are compressing. And right now, the cap rates have not completely compressed to the point where multifamily is. They're actually still a little bit high. If you, you can buy nice B and, and A class assets and sell storage for 5 and 6% cap rates, where right now, it's hard to find anything right now in multifamily with that, with that kind of a quality and those kind of cap rates. So if you can buy... Right now, in these higher cap rates, the market's just going to continue to get tighter and tighter. And over the next several years, you're going to see those cap rates compress even further, and it's going to have an extra increased potential or return potential for the investors.
0: And as far as the markets, I know that you're heavy into the Carolinas with um, your multifamily. Is that the same with self-storage, or are you branching out to other markets as well?
1: We're branching out to some other markets. And even inside the multifamily, we've started to do that, go down into some of the, the Florida markets, but also Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, even into the uh, the Texas market, so Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, uh, Houston, and we've also started to look inside of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, as well.
0: And I know that you're all you also have a debt fund. So can you talk about that as well?
1: Sure, sure. So you know, the the main reason why we started the debt fund is because we were raising money last year, right at the the beginning of the pandemic, and had a lot of investors telling us that they just wanted to sit on their capital for a while, and so. We were, we were, we, I would ask them, like, where are you going to sit at? Oh, I'm just going to sit it in my checking account or my savings account or my money market. I'm like, and it's going to do nothing for you, you know? And, uh, and so we decided to, in June of last year, we actually used some of our own personal money, put in over seven figures into a fund. We actually call it our PIC funds, the real estate debt fund. And it allows investors to put stagnant capital to work at 6% interest. There's no return above that but they have a liquidity option where they have the option to be able to at any point in time while they have their money in the fund they can say I need my money out and they have nothing we have up to 90 days to liquidate them out of the fund and so it provides them an opportunity that is a you know semi liquid fund that will allow them to still get higher higher returns than trying to stick it inside of a savings or a money market and we start, we launched it in we actually launched we didn't launch it we actually opened it up in June just for us internally to be able to work out the systems and the kinks and get everything worked out first and already, you know, go ahead and originate some loans with our own money and uh, put a team together to be able to do our own loan origination and loan servicing. And then in October of last year, we launched it out to our investors and started to open it up so we could bring in outside investor funds. And uh, right now we're sitting at about a little over 11 million in funds from our investors inside of that debt fund.
0: Interesting. And what, what kind of uh, lending are you doing?
1: We're only lending on single-family assets. We've done a few like smaller multifamilies, but most of it is going to be single-family, so it's hard assets. And average LTVs are about 62 63%, somewhere around in there. And it's primarily hard money loans, so different rehabbers, fix-and-flippers, and, flippers, and you know, we'll know put up their money for their property. And then, of course, that, that's nice for us because we only do first-position liens, and it allows us to have that first-position lien on the property, so if for some reason they default, we can take it back. And uh, up to this point, we have a 0% default rate on our, on our, on our you know, borrowers because we are very particular about who we you know, lend money to because it's obviously our investors' money that we want to make sure we're protecting.
0: And what markets are you lending in? Is it the same kind of markets that you're doing your multifamily in?
1: Right now, it's been pretty much close to home. So primarily the Carolinas, uh, more, mostly South Carolina, and then we have done a few in Georgia as well.
0: Okay. Well, that's great. So you have uh, multiple options for investors with you know, three different asset classes, basically. If, if you were mentoring new passive investors, we, we like in our group, we talk about shortcuts, how to, how to get somewhere fast. And, and you did it with self-storage, right? You, you don't, didn't really have the expertise in-house, so you hired some people. So if you're mentoring a new passive investor, what are some shortcuts you would give them to get them into it quicker and, and on the right path faster?
1: It, it really depends, Jim, because if you have a larger amount of money, then obviously the, the, the plan would be a little bit different, right? Um, so if somebody comes to me and says they have $5 million, the game plan would be a little bit different Is if they came to me and they said they have you know, $50,000, right? So let's just like, play a scenario. Let's just say that they have $500,000, right? So if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I got $500,000 I want to place over the next 12 to you know, 15 months, what should I do? The first thing you should do is, is start to get on the list of a lot of these different operators and start to get on the phone calls with them and interview them and ask them the tough questions. Go pull down that Red Flags article that we talked about earlier and ask them some of the questions that are on there and see, see how they answer, see how they respond. And then maybe even ask for some references to their investors that have invested with them before, right? And, uh, and get, get some feedbacks from some people that maybe know them. And then when you go and talk to other operators, talk to those other operators about what they think about some of these other operators, right? Because you're going to be able to get a good sense as to the reputation of that operator in the space. And that's something that I didn't even think about in the very beginning when I was putting together our group. But I have investors all the time that will call me up. They're like, Dan, he goes, I, I, don't, I have talked to multiple people about your group and they have nothing but good things to say about you, right? And that's the kind of reputation that you want to be investing with is somebody who has that strong reputation in the market and in the community. And people talk, right? This is not a very large industry. It's a very small kind of niche industry. And a lot of people know everybody else. And so that would be the first thing that I would do. And then I would See about dipping your toes in first, like with the first couple of operators, maybe only going in at, say, 25,000 with a couple of different operators, kind of see how they work, see how they communicate. Biggest thing you're going to see as a difference between operators is communication, because there's, there's some operators that don't communicate at all. There's some commun- some operators like us that actually communicate quite a bit. We send out monthly updates. when I mean, you get them, Jim. We send them out every single month. It's, by, it's like clockwork, right? By the 14th of every month, we're sending out an email and updating our investors on how their property that they invested in was performing in the prior month. We also communicate via a, a monthly printed newsletter every month. And so we, we try to be able to educate our investors as much as we can. But that would be another thing is, is get on their email lists and then also invest with them, right? And the reason why I say come in at a lower amount is because before you actually start to vet some of these people, maybe you just invest with them at a, at a smaller level. And even if, even if somebody, this is kind of a little trick that maybe some of your passive investors can use, is even if somebody goes out there and they say they have a $50,000 minimum, a lot of times you can talk to them and just say, hey, would you, would you mind this first investment if I came in at 25? You'd be surprised at how many of them would actually say yes, right? So sometimes they'll let you come in at less than, the, than their, their minimum investment. And so, again, let's just say you had 500000 for four deals. You put in twenty five each. Now you got 400000 left. You can kind of watch these other investments over the next probably three to six months, see how they perform, see if you want to add in more investment. Or maybe you're happy with just placing twenty five in each, right? You can put twenty five in each. Now, if you're wanting to place it a lot faster, like I have some investors that call me at the end of the year and they're like, hey, I got, I got half a million. I got to place between now and December 31st, you know? Obviously, the, the conversation is a little bit different. They might have to put in $100,000 each one or maybe two fifty in one and two fifty in another. And, uh, and so it just really depends on the person's personal situation, which is why we always offer to jump on a phone call with our investors, discuss their investment goals to see you know, what would be the right fit for them. And uh, we know that investors are not just going to invest with us. So We actually encourage investors to look at other operators and invest with other operators to allow themselves to have some additional diversity inside of their portfolio.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice because communication, there's really only two ways to evaluate a syndicator's performance during the investment, right? It's are you paying the pro forma pref or whatever it is, the the distributions, are they coming like you said they would? And then are you communicating with me like you said you would on a monthly basis? Because these are such illiquid investments. They're so long term, five years, like you said, if someone had 500 grand, I can't invest 50 with you, and then wait four years to see if it panned out before investing again, right? My capital would just be sitting there. So I think that's great advice to split it up, talk to people, and make sure that you get the communication that you're expecting and the distribution you're expecting. And if you're not, at least get reasons for it and then decide to move on. I know that I've invested with a few sponsors who have horrible communication, and that first investment was my last investment. But when you have a sponsor that has good communication, it just makes things run much easier. So in a related question, what mistakes do you see passive investors make?
1: Well, I think that the biggest mistake that they make is not really fully understanding the capital stack and then not fully understanding some of the nuances around preferred returns, return of capital, return on capital. And so those are, those are things that, I, that usually as I'm going throughout and, and interviewing investors and talking to them. I kind of pick out these things, and that's one of the things that I try to write about in our monthly newsletter that we print out and mail to our investors is various things that I see passive investors struggling with understanding, right? You know, they, when, they, when passive investors first get into this space, they think, about these, they, they, they think about waterfalls and hurdles and equity stacks and all this kind of stuff, and it gets way over their head really quickly. And so I try to help break that down to a point where they can fully understand it. Not just so that they can understand what they're investing in with our group, but that when they're going to invest with somebody else, they understand what they're going to be investing in. Because there is a big difference when you're investing with somebody, whether they have a preferred return or they don't have a preferred return, or maybe they have a preferred return, but they have a preferred return with a catch-up, right? where they're not even thinking about the catch-up side of things. And they don't even know what that ketchup is. Like some people think about, I'm talking about ketchup, they're getting hungry because they're thinking about like the ketchup on the hamburger, right? That's not (laughs) what we're talking about. So there's a lot of different nuances when it comes to the capital structure, the capital stack and understanding where the risks are inside of that investment. And then even, even like return of capital versus return on capital, right? There's a big difference when the distributions are done as return of capital versus return on capital. There's tax implications on both sides and being able to understand which one is the best one for you, you have to be able to understand that. And, be, and then the only way you're going to find that out, get on people's lists, interview them, ask them these questions. But then once you actually have a deal, go ahead and soft reserve for 50000 or 100000 or whatever it is and review their PPMs. So those private placement memorandums are real eye-openers when you start to open them up. There's been people that I've followed for, for several years and then I get their PPMs and I'm like, I can't invest in this, right? Because the the, the, the way they have it structured is more advantageous to them than it is for the investor. And so that's what you have to kind of be always looking at as a passive investor is those PPMs, read them very closely, because when you read through it, it's only one difference of a word, right? Return of capital, actually one letter, right? Return of capital versus return on capital, but has major implications.
0: And what are those implications depending on the, you're talking about return of capital and return on capital. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure.
1: So first off, I'll, co- I'll go out and come out and say that I always will invest in a return on capital, right? So it's a return on your investment. That's what I want to see when it comes to these monthly distributions. So that's the other thing you got to look at is is there's the monthly cash flow distributions, and then sometimes they might do quarterly, right? Our group always does monthly, but you know they have those cash flow distributions, and then they have refinance events. And then they have the end end sale event, like, kind of like the liquidation event, right? At the liquidation event and at the, the refi event, those should be classified as return of capital, right? So the investors are getting their, some of their initial capital back because it's a large sum up front. Well, when you're talking about the cash flow distributions, a lot of groups will actually classify those as return of their capital. And what that's doing is, is that it's reducing their initial capital balance. And you might be thinking, well, that's good because then I don't have to pay taxes on it, right? Well, guess what? With depreciation, you're not going to be paying taxes on the cash flows you're getting anyway. So that's a moot point. And so that's an argument that a lot of times these operators will say is, is, well, it's more a tax advantage to you because you're not having to pay taxes on those cash flows because we're classifying it as return of capital. But the problem is, is I'm not paying taxes on it anyway because I'm deferring it with depreciation anyway. So that's not, that to me doesn't make any sense. What's happening is, is the operator wants to reduce the preferred return hurdles because the preferred return is based off of what is called our unreturned capital contribution. And if the unreturned capital contribution month after month is going down because I'm getting a return of capital instead of a return on my capital, then that's allowing that, 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 uh, that operator to pay less and less. They're getting closer and closer to getting them a payday versus maintaining the investor-level distributions. So it's really just a p- dependent upon that operator. Typically, what I see as an operator who's not full-time in the business is the one who's doing that because they need that money to be able to either quit their W-2 or quit their job or do it full-time or something like that. And that's, again, that's another red flag. Part of my seven red flags is making sure you're only investing with an operator that is full-time in the business.
0: Right, and that's alignment of interest too, right? I think that's a great explanation of you want always to have return on your capital until you get to the refi or you get to the sale. And that's when it's a big chunk coming back. Right. And so you, your big chunks, you want return of your capital. And for the smaller monthly payments, you want return on your capital, right? So that, that's, right. A great, that's a great way to explain it. Can you also talk about um, a couple of, maybe two or three metrics that you look at when, when you're passive investing in uh, someone else's deals? Like what are a couple of metrics that you look at that really help you qualify the deal
1: a lot of it has to do with the operator like a lot of the things that we've already been talking about because yeah. you know metrics are metrics right I, I can take anybody's underwriting model and pull certain levers and make it look really good and make it look really bad right and so if you know if you know anything about uh, underwriting those levers can be pulled in multiple directions so a lot of it for me has to do with uh, the metrics that we've already talked about return of capital return on capital whether there's a preferred return or not. I always want to see preferred returns. I will never invest. At least at this point, I've never invested. And I have no plans to invest in anything unless it has a preferred return. So I want to have that preferred return in place. And then I also want to make sure, this is kind of a a sneaky thing that sometimes gets pushed into underwriting, is I want to make sure that there are no refinances calculated into the underwriting, right? If a deal is so tight that in order to make it work, you have to do a refinance. It's too risky. It's too tight for me. I want to make sure that the refinance is kind of the cherry on top, the icing on the cake for the investment, not what makes the deal work.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So can you talk about the preferred return? Why will you not invest in a deal that doesn't have preferred returns?
1: So very similar to the same reasons why you, I don't want to invest with a return of capital versus return on capital. The, for one, I want to be investing with an operator that wants to be aligning themselves with their investors as much as possible. I invest in every single one of our assets, and I'm usually the largest investor in our deals, right, as a passive investor. And I want to make sure that I'm protecting myself, but I'm also protecting our passive investors. So when I'm investing and looking at other operators, I want to make sure that my interest is being invested, is being protected first. So I want to get those first fruits, right? Now, some operators will, not, will take away the preferred return and they'll say, we're just going to do a straight 80-20 or a straight 70-30 or whatever the case may be. A lot of times, if you, if you, if you peel back the, the layers a little bit, you can see that that operator needs money to be able to survive. And so in order to give them money throughout the whole period, they have to give themselves that extra slice up front. But for me, I want to make sure that our investors are protected first and they get those first fruits because I couldn't do these deals if we didn't have our investors. Yes, I have some money, but I don't have as much money as all my investors combined, right? We, I can't buy all these properties by just b- one swipe check. I wish I could, but I can't. And so I know I need to protect my investors, and I want to make sure that my interests are more align, aligned with the investors so that I can make sure that they want to invest with me for many, many years. We're not the type of the group that wants to just put together one deal and that's it, right? And I've seen them, and you've probably seen them too, Jim, where there's a group that gets put together, they do one deal, maybe two, and then all of a sudden they're like, fall off the face of the earth. You're like, what happened to that group, right? Well, that's not us. You know, we want to be able to grow our wealth and our investors' wealth for many, many decades.
0: So the last question I usually ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? And the first one you can mention is your own podcast. But (laughs) after that, maybe give me a a couple other podcasts you'd like to listen to.
1: So, you know, obviously, you know, my podcast, which is, I actually have two of them now. We're launching another one coming up actually uh, next month for self-storage. Um so we, we we have a, a storage investor nation now. Um, we also oh, have our multifamily investor nation. And our multifamily podcast is actually uh, rated number one for multifamily on iTunes for the last 12 months, which is pretty pretty exciting to see. And so it's a, it's a podcast where we only interview active real estate investors that are closing multifamily deals in the last 12 months. So, you know, that we don't we have actually just before I got on a phone call here, I had somebody email me and want to get on my podcast, and I said, You don't fit the with the mold because you're not closing deals. You're just a mentor or a coach or whatever. And, right. uh, and, they're, and they're not closing deals. So uh, we I'm very strict about who comes on there. We try to release one episode a week, usually on Mondays. And then no, we're doing the same thing for, for self-storage. And it's going to be called Storage Investor Nation. That'll be coming out first part of April of 2021. And, uh, and as far as other podcasts, I, I really don't listen to very many podcasts. I'm, I, I read a lot of books and I listen to a lot of books. But I'm not a big podcast junkie, even though I'm I'm on a lot of podcasts in the very beginning and stuff. But yeah, I just I just I just really haven't been a big podcaster.
0: Can you give us a book that you'd recommend? Sure.
1: So you know, one of the one of the books that uh, I think is a a very vital book for uh for multifamily is Joe Fairless's book. He wrote a book called Best Apartment Syndication Book Ever, and it is a great book from A to Z on everything in multifamily on. You know how to get started in apartment syndication, and it's even good for passive investors to kind of fully understand, you know, what it, what it, what it takes to you know put these types of deals together, and it gives you a, a good understanding of it as well. And then, in, uh, hopefully, Jim, later in the fall, I'll be releasing a book around multifamily as well and apartment syndication. So we're in the process of writing that book right now, but probably won't be until you know Q4, maybe even Q1 of 2022.
0: Well, that's great. We'll definitely put that on our list as well. We appreciate you being with us here today. This was fantastic. If uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you?
1: Sure. Yeah, there's two different ways you can reach out to me. So if you want to follow me more on LinkedIn, I do try to put a lot of content out there. You can go to linkwithdan.com. If you go there, that just brings you straight to my LinkedIn profile. And you can connect with me further there. That's linkwithdan.com. And then, of course, you can always go to our website, passiveinvesting.com. In the top right-hand corner of the page, there is a button there to join the Passive Investing Club. You can jump on there, fill out the form, and one of our team members will reach out to you, discuss your investment goals, and see if you're the right fit for our group.
0: Excellent. I will put all of that in the show notes. And thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jim. appreciate Dan taking time today to discuss PESP investing with me. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. He's talked about the importance of delegation in his business and how that helped him to expand from his medical-related businesses into something new, and I think that was really brave to step out and, and try something new to help with his tax issues. He also talked about how hiring a mentor really jump-started his progress. And we talked in uh, Left Field Investors about shortcuts and how to get into something quickly. And hiring a mentor, as long as you hire the right one, is a great way to get started. You know, Dan still invests passively, which I really like when you talk to a sponsor and they have you know, 38 passive investments of their own because then they really understand both sides. They understand how the passive investor feels and what, what the passive investor needs and wants as far as from a sponsor. I like his recommendation, getting on as many lists with sponsors as possible because then you can see the content that they're sharing and the deal flow and that helps you figure out who you want to invest with. He also talked about picking sponsors with a background in business. So this kind of gets to the problem of, do you really want to invest with somebody new? But if they have a background in business, that might make you more likely to invest with them. I really liked how we talked about the myth of tenants moving down in asset class during a recession. A lot of people say, well, Class A, tenants will all go to Class B. And what really happens, more likely, is Class A plus might go down to Class A, or Class B might go down to B minus, but you're not getting someone from a, a fancy urban apartment paying, as Dan said, $5,000 a month, they're not going to jump down to the C-class asset and pay $500 a month. So there are there's some wiggle room there, I think. And so that's it was interesting to hear from him about that. We also talked about the two different share classes that a lot of sponsors are offering now, and it's a sign of the market tightening. And the way he talked about it is Class A shares are more like preferred equity with a higher preferred return, but they don't get that upside. For the class B, they benefit from that upside at sale and they benefit from having the class A shares not having that benefit as long as the deal performs well. If the asset doesn't perform as it's supposed to, then class B has accentuated negative returns. Dan's heading into self-storage now as a new asset. And whenever someone gets into a new asset, I get a little nervous because I've been burned on that before. But I really like that he's hired a team of experienced operators who know self-storage that makes it a lot better in my mind i like his debt fund i'm thinking about getting into that as well and i like also that that was something new but they tested it on themselves first for about four months before they allowed new investors to come in so that gives me a little bit of confidence there as well dan mentioned things that some passive investors don't always understand the importance of understanding the capital stack preferred returns and then talked a lot about return on capital versus return of capital And monthly cash flow distribution should be returned on capital, not of capital. Refinances and sales at the end, those are the return of the capital because they're sending the capital back to you, and those are non-taxed events. So it's something to really pay attention to because some operators classify monthly returns as return of capital, and they sell it to you as you're saving on taxes. But you're not really saving on taxes because you're likely not paying taxes on those returns anyway because of the depreciation and cost segregation he lastly he talked about you know the importance of investing with a sponsor who does it full-time and i i completely agree with that i like to concentrate on full-time investors although there are times i've invested with people who do it part-time but i really like to understand why and and where they're going with that dan was an excellent guest i I look forward to following him in his new adventures with self-storage and of course i continue to follow him on the multifamily assets. As, as you know, I invested in one deal with him and I'm always looking for more. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email. Jim at leftfieldinvestors.com.
3: Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.